I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Inside Track, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. After going international on the last show with Kieran Duck, I'm delighted to continue the globe trotting by welcoming Canadian Kim Gowing onto the podcast today. Hello, Kim. Good to meet you again. Um, we've got to know each other a little bit over the last few months through the Transformation Leaders Hub, and, and I was keen to uh, to get you on the pod as I think you, that your career has been different to many of the people that we've had on before, uh, in so much that most of your change experience has, has been built on the back of operational roles rather than specific project roles. Uh, so do you want to share a little bit more about your background and your experience to the listeners now so we've got the context of what we're going to talk about? Sure. It's great to be here. I've been a listener of your podcast for months now, so it's nice to finally be a participant as opposed to a listener. So as you said, um, I think my journey into change has been a bit different than others. I kind of backed into change, actually, and really just put a label on it um, in terms of recognizing what it is I love and what I do well. But it's only been in the last year or so that I've I've realized this. So my career, I can kind of split into two halves. The first half was back in my homeland of Canada, not the U.S., which is where I was from. <laughs> and I spent um, my, my career up for, for the first 20 years was exclusively in financial services, equipment financing in particular. I had a successful career in several large multinational organizations and the opportunity, which was great, to work for American companies, Japanese companies and Dutch companies which gave me a great understanding of the cultural aspects um, of business. But my focus, as you called out at the beginning, Tony, has always been on the cultural and the operational side of the business, having had Canadian, North American, and ultimately global responsibility. So the second half of my career began in 2010, when I was recruited by my client at the time, who was a global provider of technology. And he invited me to relocate to London and establish their own in-house leasing organization across um, Europe. So five years on from that, I had created a presence in 16 countries, grew the, the book to in excess of a billion in assets and was spinning off about 50 million a year in um, net profit. What that has to do with change, I'll come back to in just a moment. Um, the last it was nice, but the, that wasn't the fun part of it. The, the numbers speak for themselves, but there was a lot more to it that I personally took more out of, which I'll come back to in a sec. Um, so the last five years after I established that leasing presence, I felt it was time having spent my entire career doing leasing. I wanted to prove that I could be successful outside of that and that as a leader, I could be successful doing anything because those skills are transferable. So I moved within the same organization and I took a role that sat between the business and IT. And we had responsibility for all system processes across 22 countries. And we were responsible for driving the governance of those processes, the standardization of them and the improvement of them. So we kind of acted as the bridge between the business and IT. And we managed all of the engagement and communication between those two entities Um, 
and specifically focused on technological deployments, driving training, user readiness, and ultimately the adoption of the, of the new system. I came out of the corporate world back in April 2020, and it was only at that point in time as I started to reflect on the last 10 years of my career and think about what I wanted to do for the next 10 years that I realized my success over the past 10 years had been down to two factors. One was I had a brilliant team that I had built around me. But the second one, which I think is equally as important, is that in order to achieve the objectives, I had to win the hearts and minds of an awful lot of people to get to that place. So now if we go back to when I talked about building out that leasing organization, billion, 50 million in um, net profit, that's great. But what thrilled me about that and where I got the most value was knowing that I had to win the hearts and minds of 16 different boards of directors in order to drive a new operating model through. And then I had to win over 3,500 salespeople that were going to be impacted by a change in what they were doing. So neither of those are easy tasks, but that's where I thought, okay, this whole stakeholder management, um, the people side of change, that's what was really great. And then in the last role, when I moved into that IT role, the first change program that we managed um, was a huge uh, end-to-end process in the system, which was one of the most challenging processes in the system, lots of manual work, lots of broken steps. And the change we were looking to affect, we said it was going to take 18 months. And the board at the time said, you'll never, you can't do it in 18 months. We need quick wins, quick wins. And I learned to hate the term quick wins quite quickly. (laughs) And I said, you can't do quick wins because it's just so broken. It's going to make it more painful. I'll sell this to the business. I'll get them bought into it. And sure enough, we did deliver this in 18 months. But the the movement that we created amongst the impacted users and the support we gained was fantastic. So it was through that that I thought, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. It's called change. It's about helping people navigate through the journey. And that's how I ended up where I am today. Interesting. And and going back to that role that you had um, where you were saying you struggled between IT and the business. Uh, which is, I think is an absolutely key role for, for many reasons. Uh, prior to that, that role being in place, putting that role in place, how was technology projects driven into the business uh, you know, previously? Was, was, that, was that more the technology people driving it in or was it the business pulling it in or was it a bit um, ad hoc? IT pushing it in. I, I would say um, it was more of a comply and die approach. Um, And part of that was warranted based on the sheer size and gravitas of of what they were trying to do. So there was an element that they didn't have a choice. But the reason my team came into existence, and because it was a new team I created, it was to splinter the group off from IT that were working with the business but create a different environment for them and just rethink the engagement with the business and make it such that the business felt they had an ally and a voice and someone who could support them. Didn't mean they always got what they wanted, but at least they had an opportunity to be heard. 
So that's why our role came into place because it wasn't working as well as it could it, yeah. uh, the way it was set up previously. Yeah, and I think that, that that is a key role in, in most organisations, I find. And, and having that ability to have a discussion with the technologist at a level that they understand and, and, and accept you, but at the same time being able to translate that into the business language when you're talking to uh, the operational people is a key skill. Um, and it helps to drive that, um, that enablement and that embedding of the new technology, I find. Absolutely critical. Um, all the people that were on my team had come out of the business and they spoke the language of the business, yet they had developed enough skill set that they knew enough to be dangerous in IT, but not enough to be so technical that they were in IT. The yeah. only, uh, the biggest learning that I take away from that, though, it was a brilliant role and the value we provided to the business was um, phenomenal as repeated multiple times by the business. But the challenge, I think, is, is making sure that if you have that role or that organization that sits between, success has to be measured the same way for IT as it does the team that's trying to drive the change with the business. Mm -hmm. Because if IT on one hand is sitting there and are measured, their measurement of success is we've delivered the technology and my team's measure of success is we want people to use it. We want them to have felt part of the journey. Yeah. If you're not aligned, then it's you're going to create a lot of unnecessary friction between the teams and the business, which isn't warranted. So for me, the yeah. biggest lesson is the measures of success have to align. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. Because ultimately, the benefit from that technology only happens and, and, is, and is only delivered when people start using it in the way that it's meant to be used. And, and, and if they don't, then, yeah, all, all, all new technologies is a cost to the business. Um, and, and so many times, um, you know, organisations, projects are deemed to have failed because they've not delivered the value, expected value. In, in a big and in, in technology enabled organizations, I find that it, it is down to like that, that what you just said around you know the focus um, the focus of the technology people is to get the icon on the screen uh, to get the technology stood up, um, but it's not necessarily to get it embedded and being utilized in, in the right way and delivering the value that was was expected. Yeah, and that can just um, it's just it creates unnecessary obstacles we have enough obstacles when we're drive, trying to drive change through an organization and there's things that are outside of our control that we try to mitigate but it's really frustrating when things that are within our control we, we can't overcome those obstacles and they just take away time and energy from where we should be focused totally agree so um the focus of the podcast is transformation um, but everybody has a different interpretation of what they mean by transformation. So, so question that we ask everybody, how do you define transformation? Can I ask you how you define transformation or does that, is that cheating? <laughs> it is cheating, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think it's like a lot of terms and especially terms that are so in vogue today. Um, you ask 10 different people and you'll get 10 different explanations. For me, I'm not that precious about what the definition means. I think if it's 
transformation, the only thing it conjures up in my mind is a sense of scale and it's big. So it's a company that's that's making a fundamental change in how they operate or run their business. But I guess I would say, regardless of how big the change it is, there's a common link against any transformation, which is in order for it to be successful, 99% of the time, it requires people to do or behave differently. So that's the underlying theme, regardless of the size or scale of it. It's interesting. I I, um, put a a post out a few weeks ago um, on LinkedIn uh, about this very subject. And um, my definition is is pretty similar to what you've just said. It it, it is large, but it is about transforming from one state to another state. It's not a a process of continual improvement. Um, Continual improvement can deliver a transformed state over a period of time. But a transformation program in itself is is is, is focused about taking a, an entity from one state to the next, and I, I use the analogy of a, a butterfly um, uh, to, 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 to demonstrate that. And uh, but someone came back and challenged me quite heavily on the fact that actually you can transform through a series of of, of, of smaller business improvements. Um, so it, it just demonstrates, as you said, that so many. So people, different people have different interpretations of what's meant by the word transformation. And, and as you say, unfortunately, it has become a little bit of a buzzword over the last few years. So anything and everything is becoming a transformation. Um, I think it's easier to probably get people to agree on characteristics of it, like yes. people at the center of it. We can probably all agree with that. Um, and that's probably the first step towards understanding it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But coming back to your experience in the operational role and what you've just been talking about around driving and delivering training transformation, you mentioned it already a number of times uh, on the pod uh, today, but um, uh, you know the focus on winning the hearts and minds of the stakeholders and the employees to deliver that strategic change. Um, just to try and just go a little bit deeper and explain what you mean by that, uh, and more importantly, what do you do? What what do you do to go about achieving it? Sure. So probably the easiest way to do it is I'll explain. I'll share two stories and just bear with me because there is a point to them. So one is around um, just recently with one of my clients. We were trying to mobilize a community of change champions, if you will, people from the front line who are impacted by a change, who could be, come together and help us manage or navigate um, their team members through the change. And there was one woman who was asked to participate and she was hesitant and she'd actually declined. And her manager had come to me and said, um, really sorry, but she's uncomfortable participating. We'll have to find someone else. So I had said, okay, that's fine. But would you mind if I had a conversation with her? Bearing in mind, I didn't know her. Um, Let me have a conversation. And I just want to understand what her rationale is and see if there's anything I can do. But if at the end of it, she's uncomfortable, then that's fine. I won't pressure her. Um, So I had the conversation and she explained to me that her hesitation was around the fact that she didn't really understand what it was about. And she was fearful that she wouldn't be able to do what was expected of her. So once I heard that and I explained to her what we were trying to do and how I thought not only could she 
add a lot to the process, but she would personally benefit a lot by the new experience. 20 minutes later, I asked her, so how do you feel now? Would you like to be a part of it? And she said, I, absolutely. I said, she said, once you help me understand what this is about, then I want to be a part of it. And that is such a great story because that's exactly what we talk about when we say winning hearts and minds. It's helping people feel like they've got a voice and just being listened to. And had I not had that conversation, she would have walked away without now being an active participant in this and missed out on so much great opportunity. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, though, because she was quite brave in, in coming out and saying she didn't want to get involved. Uh, I, I find a lot of people that are probably similar, sort of, everybody, I think, has that sort of initial thoughts of, well, what does it mean to me? What's going to be yep. the impact upon me? Uh, and, and you know, is, is, are there any risks to me moving forward? So, you know, if, if everyone's got that, concept, that that thought, going through that thought process in the mind, some people, like like, like the, the lady in question, are brave enough to come out and, stick, and, and say that. Many people just keep their head down um, and don't say it, but don't get actively involved because they're concerned and worried about it. Uh, and, and that's a big, that, that, that's ultimately a bigger issue, I think. It is. And I think, I think we have to be realistic that we're not going to be able to win everyone over, but this is about giving people an opportunity, a genuine opportunity to participate. They have to decide if they want to or not. We can't force them to do it, but we can give them lots of opportunity to do it. So yeah. That's just about giving people a chance to speak up and be heard, which I think is really, really important. Now, the second example, which might seem a little odd, but again, stick with me. It's about my husband. <laughs> and it's about my husband baking bread. So if we go back to when we were in lockdown, I promise there's a point to this. When we were in <laughs> lockdown, we struggled to get um, just to buy bread off the shelves. A lot of us went through that challenge. So I had a bread maker that I hadn't cracked out for years. So I got out the bread maker and every single week for a year, I was making bread. And every single week for a year, my husband would say, oh, that smells great. This bread's so good. Um, I wish I could make it. And every week for a year, I would say, you can make it. And as the more I started talking to him about this, the more I realized the issue. My husband had a complete awareness that we needed to have bread or we needed to make bread. So the awareness was there. He had an ability to do it. He could do it if he wanted to do it. And, and he was more than capable of pulling things together. The issue with my husband was that he had absolutely zero desire to make the bread. And as a result, he never was going to make the bread unless I was able to inspire that desire in him to want to make it. The point of that story is every single person goes through change and every single person goes through a similar, similar steps in the change. And you can't, he can't have a desire to make bread until he's got an awareness that we need it. Just like someone at work can't desire to be part of a change journey if they don't understand what the change is and what it means to them. And I just think that this winning hearts and minds is about helping people create that awareness and inspiring them in some way, painting a picture for what the, the end state looks like realistically, telling them there's going to be bumps along the way, but trying to inspire them such that they make a choice to be part of that program. And, and that's, for me, what change is all about when we talk about winning hearts and minds. 
what a great story. I love it. And yeah, you need to be clear. The the um the appendix to that story with my husband is that he did make bread once but he's gone back to no desire to make bread, which is also relevant though, because when people go through change, they can have that desire and choose to be a part of it. But maybe the more that they learn about the change, the more knowledge we give them, they might lose that desire. So though it's a silly analogy with the bread, I think it's just so meaningful and relevant. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great analogy, actually. I think I might have to steal that in due course. Well, thankfully, I'm more successful managing people at work through change than I am with my husband. <laughs> so, um, so that that's obviously one um, um, key element that you that you find in terms of you know establishing those right conditions to 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 deliver change. What 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 other conditions do you find are absolutely essential um, to have in place um, for change to be successful? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people will call out things such as like strong sponsorship and a clear strategy and a strong plan. And and they're not wrong at all. I think there's one or two other things that are slightly different, I would call out. So silos and the elimination of silos, I think, is really important, which, again, speaks to bringing people together. If you're doing any sort of of digital transformation that's impacting processes or a new target operating model that's impacting processes in the way people work today, it's so important both when you're designing what the end state looks like um, and engaging with people that you do it from an end-to-end process and you help people understand the impacts of choices they're making upstream and downstream from where they are. And I think that that for me is a huge issue. Organizations that don't take the opportunity to bring people together and break down those silos, because those can be massive um, deterrents to success on any change program where processes are impacted. So elimination of silos is another one for me. Um, And then I think, I mean, we talk about communication all the time and communication and engagement Again, following up on the people theme, I can't stress enough. So communication, meaning that one way push of info, whereas engagement, meaning two way. And for me, when I think of communication, there's a couple of principles under that, which with any client I deal with, we talk about this and it has to form sort of the guiding principles for how we will manage the program. So it's about transparency which doesn't mean sharing everything to everyone all the time. You still have to manage it, but it's about just being honest and sharing the right information at the right time with the right people. So I think transparency, being empathetic. Sorry, I was going to say, just on that honesty element, I think it's, it's okay to tell people that you don't know at this stage. Um, But um, to outline the timescales when you'll be able to come back t- with the answers to any questions that they have or any concern that they have. Uh, all too often, people try to duck that because they feel that they need to be able to tell people so they don't they don't raise the issue because they don't have all the answers. And, 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 and that just creates distrust, I find. Yeah, I think it's better to say you don't know than to try and waffle your way through it because, to your point, that just fosters more distrust. But I also think too, I don't know about you, but if I'm um, if I'm on the receiving end of a change and 
I hear for an extended period of time, it's green, it's green, everything's great, everything's great, everything's great. I start to get distrustful of that because we all know that things aren't going to be positive all the time. There will be obstacles. So though I think it's important to talk about the good things, I think you have to balance it with things that are struggling, that you're struggling with and where the challenges do exist. Because I think that just builds, again, credibility with the story that you're telling to people and not to shy away from that. No, I agree. It's, it's interesting. It, it reminded me of a story that I think it was Richard Kerr on an earlier one um, uh, mentioned uh, the watermelon moment uh, where everything's green until you cut into it and it's suddenly red. Yeah. I thought, I was, that was, again, great analogy. Um, I've used that a few times since Richard mentioned it. That one's brilliant. I do like that one. And it's so true. And I think the last thing I'd say on, on communication is around being consistent. So, and especially if you're the program that you're running, if it runs over an extended period of time, you've got to maintain consistency in what you do. You can't have fits and flurries, or if you do set the expectations that you're going to have fits and flurries, because once you start the moment you drop off, you're not maintaining that momentum and you're going to start losing people, which isn't what we want. Yeah. I, I think it's far better to um, write up front, talk about the plan and outline when communication is going to be delivered uh, and as you say, not get into a routine of delivering things daily, weekly or whatever, early, early doors and then going to monthly or quarterly afterwards because people just lose track of it. If you can commit up front to what you're going to do and, and, and deliver against that commitment, people will live on bi-weekly or monthly updates because they're expecting it and they know what to expect and, and, you, and you deliver it on time. But they're, they're okay with it. I agree. And it kind of goes back to the story that I said at the beginning about when we did that first change and I said it was going to take us 18 months and the board's like, no, the business won't stand for that. Well, they will stand for it because we were honest. We did what we said we were going to do and they were a part of that journey every step of the way. So if you, it's, it's managing expectations, it's setting the expectations and then delivering on those expectations. And if something changes, reset the expectations it's really not that difficult uh, absolutely so I'm, I'm quite keen just to explore your thoughts and and, and and views on the roles that you had previously to the consulting role that you're doing at the moment you know the operational roles and and you know we, we all talk about transferable skills and it's quite obvious you've got you've had lots of transferable skills that you've been able to to, to bring into the consulting uh, business that you've got now what other skills have, have you found have been really beneficial as you as, as, as you move into the consulting world um i i think i'll answer it to begin with slightly different in that I think the fact that I grew up in Canada for the first part of my career, that's helped me with where I am today, especially in light of the fact that so much of the work is remote now. Because in Canada, um, I, was, I always had either Canadian or North American roles, and it was so expensive for us to travel. And this goes back to the time where we didn't have the benefit of even videos, um, so we, because it was so expensive to travel and it took us so long to get anywhere, it wasn't like in the States where you could hop on a plane for $100 and fly from New York to Chicago for an hour meeting and then back for dinner. 
So we had to become very adept at developing relationships over the phone. And it was interesting when I took my, when I had that team, um, when we were responsible for the processes at my last organization, they were accustomed to traveling all around Europe. They did a lot of travel and a point in time came where we couldn't do the travel anymore. And I just kept saying to them, you know, I'm not sympathetic to this because I've grown up in a world where I don't need to be in front of someone to develop a relationship. So that I think is a great skill to have today because most of the clients that I'm working on, I've not met them in person and it hasn't impeded my ability to infiltrate an organization and get, and get, um, get close to them. So I think that that would be one of the things. And I think the other, the biggest benefit I have the commercial side just goes to, you know, dealing well with people and, and getting on with people. But I think operationally, what it's taught me is the benefit of an end-to-end perspective. So when I mentioned about breaking down silos, I'm so passionate about that because having led um, operational teams and being able to sit over top and see that half of the problems we end up with is because people don't talk to each other and they don't get that by pushing this piece of paper off of their desk onto someone else's, all you're doing is pushing the problem further down the chain. So I think that whole process piece, that's what I took away from that and the importance of always questioning, is this the right way to do it? And I don't, you know, you don't have to be a Lean Six Sigma expert. It's just being quite logical in how you think and stepping back and just seeing where the bottlenecks are and trying to figure out what we could do different or better. So I think operationally, that end-to-end view and the importance of just always trying to get better and more efficient, which doesn't mean getting rid of people. It's just getting rid of those bottlenecks. That's helped yeah. me tremendously get a better appreciation for today. I, th- I think it's 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 always putting yourself in the mind or, or, in the, or in the shoes of the client or the customer, isn't it? Because you know, as a client or as a customer, yeah, interested in what part of the business is delivering each part of the uh, of the work that you, you you're engaging with. You just want the solution that you're buying. Um, yeah. So f- silos don't matter to to a customer, there. But unfortunately, no. in all too all too many organisations, those silos are really really embedded within the culture of an organisation. And uh, as you say, break those down, and you can deliver massive change very very quickly. Until you break them down, it's really difficult. And it's hard to break them down as well. But you know what you just described? There's a a Japanese term for that. It's called Oya Kadachi, which is put yourself in the shoes of your customer. Right. Which I think is really powerful. And a lot of people talk about it, but I don't think enough people, it's talk, it's not action. Yeah, yeah. And and just going back to your your other point, though, about... um, being able to build relationships remotely and like you say you know um, over the last 12 18 months we've all had to uh, develop that skill um some 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 have done it better than others um but we um, in many cases you've had the ability to uh, see people at least through zoom and video and stuff and such like um but again how do you, you know some some key themes that you can bring out about what you do you, you know to to develop that that skill set prior to the video age or even now with the video what what are, what are the key things themes that that, that you uh, look to 
Um, you know, what, what, what are the key things that you do to, 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 to help you build those relationships remotely? It, the basic one is to just be more interested, be more concerned with being interested in the other person than interesting myself. So yeah. I am a natural introvert. So to be fair, the fact that I can network now from my home is utopia for me, though I can I can definitely do the networking in person, but my, I get more energy from from doing it this way. But I think it's about not worrying, not trying to dominate the conversation and not tell everyone about yourself. I'm far more interested in asking questions and learning about the other person. And the more you ask questions then I think the more you build that, that relationship. And then if they ask me questions, great, I'll, I'll, I can offer stuff up. But my first approach is always invest more in the other person and you'll get a lot more back in return. That's the fundamental cornerstone for me. Yeah, I remember uh, many, many years ago uh, in my banking career and um, going on a, a sales course. So this was 30-odd years ago. And and you just use the same term as, as the sales trainer did then. Um, um, be interested, not interesting. Um, and 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 you know a key a key sort of strand of, of, of his sales approach was when you're talking to a potential client or potential customer, ask the questions and be interested in them. Don't try to be interesting to them. Um, and it, it, it stuck with me for for the last 30 years and it's, it's interesting that you use the same terminology yeah no I think that's the key so um one of the things that um, we touched on a little bit I suppose about how, how people react to change and react to pro, uh, transformation programs and some people get very stressed and very upset and very um, uncertain about the future um, and, and change can be stressful. What, what, what do you do to alleviate any stress that you find? Well, I probably should say great things like I go walking and I meditate and time with my family. But quite honestly, and don't judge me by this, just give me a bit of reality TV and I'm quite happy. So <laughs> I am a I am no longer a closet Love Island watcher after being on this podcast, but I just <laughs> I just am quite happy with that mindless fluff where I don't need to think um and I can just forget about everything. So I'm so focused on how ridiculous it is when I'm watching those shows that I don't think about anything else. So reality TV or the other one, interestingly enough, on a TV theme, and I swear I don't actually watch a lot of TV, but if I am going to watch something else, it would be a show with subtitles. Um, some of Scandinavian shows with subtitles, because oh, yeah. that forces me to just pay attention to what I'm doing. So I can't worry about anything else. It's a great way to just get everything out of my mind because I can't multitask. It's the only thing I can't multitask doing watching subtitle shows. And then I do like time with hubby and my three dogs, but reality TV almost trumps that. <laughs> Very good. I, I, I think it's interesting though, isn't it? Because like you say, some people have, uh, when, I, when I've asked that question, will say, um, yeah, we'll go to yoga or we go swimming or we go cycling or running. Um, but it's exactly the same thing. It, it's just giving yourself some space and some time to get away from everything and, and you choose reality TV 
whilst other people go and get on a bike. But it's fundamentally the same principle, isn't it? It's just giving yourself time to, to get away. So if you if you if you could only do one thing, if you if you go into an organisation and and you, you've only got one opportunity to make a difference to 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 help ensure that a change or transformation is successful, what is that one thing? Well. Maybe I could sum it up by a quote from Simon Sinek, which I love, which is right in front of me, called The Mind Can Be Convinced, But the Heart Must Be Won. Mm. He's and got some great quotes, actually, Simon. Has. Brilliant. Brilliant. And that one for me, I think, just sums up anything. If, like I said at the beginning, if what the organization's trying to do requires people to do something differently in order to achieve the return they want on that investment or to define their success, then I think that quote is critical. Minds can be convinced, hearts must be won. A great way to, to end the podcast, I think. Lovely. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, Kim. That was great. And I think um, the opportunity to um, look at transformation from a slightly different perspective was really insightful. So once again, thank you very much for your input. And for those of you who are new to the pod, subscribe and uh, you will get notification of new uh, shows as they are released every other week. Equally, for those of you that haven't checked out the Transformation Leaders Hub, please do so. It's a great way for those operating in change and transformation to build your network, get to know new people and ultimately create opportunities for each other.